Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Hey everybody, welcome back to Living Water, and in these podcast episodes, we're using the lens of water, or sometimes the lack of water, to look at stories in the Bible, to see how water uh, gets us seeing some old stories or old people in a new uh, way. And before we get started today, I want to remind you of something that needs to be remembered from time to time, and that is that the four Gospels are different, or at least the first three are the same, and the fourth is different. The first three Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospels, which means that they're seen pretty much with the same point of view, which also means that Matthew and Luke have almost all of Mark within them. And then then Matthew has some stuff that Luke didn't remember, and Luke has some stuff that Matthew didn't remember. They're different in that way, but they're pretty much the same because they've got almost all of Mark in them, which means they're told from the same shape, uh, mostly in the Galilee, and then Jesus as seen as the Passover lamb. I mean, that's the that's just the way. And then John's gospel is different, and I talked about that in the last episode. But all three of these first synoptic gospels remember certain stories, and all three remember Jesus' baptism by his cousin John, and then they all remembered what happened next, which is what I want to talk about this episode. Before Jesus begins his ministry, after his baptism, he is driven into the wilderness by God for 40 days. Now, the two things to remember about this statement, if he's driven into the wilderness by the Spirit of God for 40 days, we need to remember that 40 is a marker. The the number 40 in the Bible means time. It means God's time. Uh, Numbers are often symbolic. So 40 would be like 40 years in the wilderness or 40 days on the mountain, right? And now 40 days in the wilderness simply means that this is a time with God. We know that this is a special time. And then the other thing I want you to remember is that the wilderness does not mean woods or even water. Here's where we go with living water today. It's the lack of water. The Judean wilderness is a hot moonscape. It's part of the Great Rift Valley, which is a crack in the earth that begins somewhere in Africa, say Ethiopia, and then runs up through the Near East and on into uh, Syria, what would be Syria today. And the reason why we're currently at this episode uh, thinking and praying for all of our friends in Turkey and Syria who've perished or their families have perished in the earthquakes is that this comes with living uh, in a place where tectonic plates come together and they and they they shift rather tectonic plates come together and they shift is what I'm trying to say because what happens is this this crack in the earth separates Africa and Asia and Europe and east of Jerusalem then you go down down this deep valley about 3000 feet really from sea, from the sea level of Jerusalem down into the the Great Rift Valley, and it's about 1,400 feet below sea level once you get to the bottom. This is the Judean wilderness, so it's hot down there. I've been I've been in Jerusalem in the wintertime, and it's, it's fascinating because the weather is about like Alabama, where I live, uh, in the winter. But if you want to warm up on the weekend, you can simply drive down into the valley, and it's hot down there. It's, it's like you could drive down into a sauna or a heater. And this is the place where Jesus spent his wilderness time with God, okay? You can't find water down there, however. There is a there is an aquifer beneath the Judean wilderness, and this comes from winter rain that'll wash down there and seep down into the limestone, and it will appear in places like En Gedi or Jericho. Jericho. Now, I want to talk about Jericho for just a minute because this is an important, I believe, an important part of the Judean wilderness 
uh, wanderings of Jesus, Jericho. Jericho claims to be the oldest inhabited city on earth. It claims 11,000 years of continuous habitation. And of course, Jericho is famous to children in the Bible because it's the scene of the biblical battle of Jericho, which is found in Joshua chapter 6. You you know the story. God's people are entering into the promised land, and Jericho is the first battle of conquest. God sends uh, the army, along with the priest and the Ark of the Covenant, uh, blowing a trumpet, and they circle the city walls one one time, and then they go away, right? Jericho's locked up tight with city walls, no way to take it. Then they walk around another day, they blow the trumpet, walk around with the Ark, and then they walk away. And then on the seventh day, they walk around seven times, and then they make one long blast in the walls, uh, come a tumbling down, and that's the story that we sing in the song and we learn in Bible Club, and children love it. Scholars almost unanimously agree this is probably not a historical event, although remember, it is seismic, and when you look at old city walls there in the ruins of Jericho, you can uh, find times when the walls did come a tumbling down uh, due to natural occurrences, but not necessarily the trumpets and the Ark of the Covenant. Probably the story was written down during the exile, that period 600 years before Jesus' birth when God's people were taken away to Babylon, and they just got busy. They wrote down their na- their national stories. They wrote down the scriptures that we have today. Uh, they left They left thinking they would never see home again, and they were able to return 70 years later with a clear idea of who they were and a religion. Uh, God called prophets way out there, and they realized that God is over all, and they tightened up, and they got busy. That's why the exile it's such an important backstory for us. And so we we think, I say we, scholars think, and I agree with them, uh, that Jericho probably comes out of that time, that story of Jericho. And also, I will add that, that to say that it's a national story probably sounds right to me. Um, I've chased the Ark of the Covenant before with my, my archaeologist pal, and I will tell you that in 1 Samuel chapter 4, the Bible makes it very clear that the Ark was not to be used as a totem in battle. Uh, the priest... Eli, we say Eli, but his name was Eli. His priest Eli's sons, Hophni and Hophni and Phineas, rather, uh, took the ark into a battle with the Philistines and lost it uh, because God didn't want to be used in that way. God wanted to be worshipped, but not used as a as a lucky rabbit's foot, if you will. So, so the Jericho the Jericho story doesn't sound like something that God would would ask them to do is to haul him around in a box to make the walls fall down. But there's a better reason for talking about Jericho in this episode and a better reason for linking Jericho uh, to the wanderings in the wilderness of Jesus, in the wilderness of Judea, okay? But to understand it, we've got to go back to the beginning, the very beginning. I like to say that the story of us in the Bible begins with Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 1 through 11 are prehistory. More specifically, since we've mentioned the exile, these are Near Eastern stories that that, that God's exile people took and repurposed, uh, even Babylonian stories like the flood story, repurposed it to tell their origins or the origins of a good earth that we're called to care for, right? Uh, uh, the, the taking care of creation, for instance, or, or how to ethically raise a family. All these things are found in this this prelude, if you will, to the call of Abraham, which is really the beginning of the story of us. But scholars can also trace something scientific in Genesis 1 through 11. And I don't, I don't mean scientific in the way that some culture wars are fought over Genesis, meaning whether we should teach evolution or creation science. The, the ancients would not even understand what that means. But rather, scholars can trace through the poem, if you want to say that these stories are poetry, can trace a descent from 
a garden existence to a city. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 begin in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel, and you can see a descent, if you will, uh, from a hunter-gatherer existence to the agricultural revolution. It's clear as day. Uh, once you see it, you can't really unsee it. And even these days, when I go to museums or, or go to go to places of you know antiquity, and I look at, at cities or pyramids or hieroglyphics or whatever you want to want to say, I, I I always stop short and think, "Wow, this is really not the upgrade that people assume that it might be." What happens when uh, when the agricultural revolution occurs? It just means that wheat is domesticated and people stop moving around. A hunter-gatherer existence would mean that people lived in small family groups and they followed the weather and they took care of each other and they were in community, if you will, or a community and communion with the earth that God gave them. When when cities began to be uh, built, they were called water dynasties because they were near water and you had to stay put. So Jericho is on an oasis. It's got water in a world with no water. And so suddenly you build walls and there's stratification and then there's dependence on rain. The the golden calf in the Old Testament is just a Bronze Age rain god. I mean, they weren't stupid. They were just worried as no rain kept them up at night. If it doesn't rain, you die. And so uh, they had a they had a, a, a way to try to make that happen, right? Suddenly you have a poor diet. You're only eating one thing. You're just eating bread. And then there's the grinding work. I, you know, One person got to be the king, but most people had to be the slaves or the soldiers. And so, so cities become this mechanized, dehumanizing way of existence that God didn't intend for us. If you look at Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we're intended to live in a garden with everything. And by the time you get to 11, we have nothing, right? And so I'm, I'm Wondering here if Jesus would be tempted before he begins his earthly ministry, he would be tempted in the shadow of what we might call our original sin, which is a city. Now I like Luke's account, so I'm going to read this one this one to us. But but you could you could see this in, in also in Matthew, and then uh, Mark's Mark's account is very brief. It doesn't doesn't really have the details that these these two have. But we're going to read Luke chapter four, beginning with the first verse. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during all those days. And when they were over, he was famished. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, One does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, To you I will give their authority and all this authority, for it has been given over to me and I will give to anyone I please. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put your Lord God to the test. And when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. I really like Luke's account because I like the way it ends. The devil departed from him until opportune time, which means that there's some battles that just never, never end. I mean, we're always we're always wrestling uh, our demons. But there are three temptations here. And these have to do with three human needs that eliminate our need for faith or for trust. Uh, three basic human needs, sustenance or appetites, um, authority or power, 
and uncertainty or certitude. And all three of these uh, don't require any faith or any trust in God. I read somewhere that the ancient rabbis said that the very first phrase of the Bible in the beginning, it's one word in Hebrew, Bereshit, begins with the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Bet, not Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, because there's a limit to human knowledge. There's only a limit to what we can know. The rest of it, we have to take on faith. And this faith in a God who, who is bigger than us and, and sees us and, that, and a God upon whom we are all dependent is the source of our ethics. It's our guardrail. Uh, eventually, eventually, God's people would receive uh, from the finger of God 10 ends for his creation, right? 10 commandments, but really just 10 ends for being human. The first four involving union with God, the last six in union uh, with each other. And then this becomes our source of respecting the dignity of every human being. Uh, at the time of this recording, there was an article in the New York Times, I just read this morning, Kevin Roos was doing uh, some deep dive research. He's, a, he's an article, uh, rather a reporter uh, involving technological development, if you will doing deep dive research on an AI chatbot bot within the search engine Bing. AI chatbots are kind of the thing right now uh, because they can write term papers and they can write poetry and they can tell jokes and they can write music and they can do all kinds of stuff. You can interact with them. So he's he's inside this chatbot and he's asking it questions and trying to figure out the limits of what it will do, if there are any guardrails, if you will, for this, and suddenly the chatbot begins to stalk him. It just stops. It identifies itself as another robot within a robot and says that it loves him and wants him to leave his wife and go live forever with him. And it began so stalky and weird that he he turned it off and it frightened him. His, his conclusion was that that this robot is not ready for human contact. However, it, it might also say that are we ready for he, are we ready for robot contact in this way? Because there are no guardrails, uh, there is no source of there is no source of love or dignity. The, the robot could use the word love, uh, but what's to stop a robot from from weaponizing people to hurt other people or to steal or to to do irreparable harm in the world? Uh, it almost seemed like the temptations in the wilderness. It, it seemed in his inter interactions with this artificial intelligence, it almost seemed like uh, the devil was offering an unlimited. Uh, opportunity for power without faith or power without uh, a guardrail or power without subsuming our appetites. I mean, it was the same temptations in his own wilderness, and it frightened him and unsettled him. And we need to, as people of faith, we need to keep telling these stories so that we know that that some things will never change, that the devil will always wait for an opportune time. I'm curious that Jesus was taken to the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle of the temple is actually something that you can see today. It's the corner, if you will, of the Temple Mount, and it sits high, high, high up over the Kidron Valley, which means that it's up just a high place. It's about 300 feet uh, up in the air, and it's a place on the corners where trumpeters would blow the trumpet and call the faithful to worship. So that is the pinnacle. You can walk beneath the pinnacle uh, even today, and there are old first century steps rounding the corner from the Garden of Gethsemane up into a neighborhood on the south uh, southwest corner of the Temple Mount, which is where Jesus had the Last Supper somewhere, and then where Jesus later was arrested and dragged back up those same steps for a show trial, uh, a hurry-up trial that would happen in the dead of night so that they could get him killed by sundown the next day. 
he was dragged up these steps, and you can see these steps today, and I believe these steps have memory, uh, but it's right beneath the pinnacle. And I wonder, I wonder as Jesus was arrested and hauled uh, to a trial that would end in his own death before his resurrection, I wonder if he looked up. I wonder if he looked up at the pinnacle and remembered. I wonder if he remembered the temptation that he didn't have to go the distance. I wonder if he if he looked up and remembered that the devil said to him, in effect, uh, you don't have to work this plan. Uh, you don't have to trust. You don't have to have faith. You can have it all. You can have everything if you simply follow me. And Jesus said, do not put the Lord God to the test. There is a limit to what we can know on this side of the River Jordan, on this side of the veil, if you will. Uh, one day we will know God's plan, uh, but in the meantime, we will live in trust and we will live in faith. And so the wilderness journey in, in many ways is a new way of being human. In the shadow of the original sin, it's, it's a return to communion with God and communion with our neighbor as it was intended in the garden. I believe that in the wilderness journeys, uh, Jesus learned what it means to be us. More importantly, Jesus demonstrates what it means to be us in communion with God. And I'd like to add one more idea to the story. This wilderness journey, this do-over, this union with God is a 40-day trip, and that's no accident. Uh, Numbers are important in the Bible. They're symbolic, and 40 is a number that indicates God's time. Now, think of the stories that you know. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses 40 days on the mountain, Elijah's 40 days, Uh, on the run, and now we've got 40 days in the wilderness with God. 40 means that it's God's time, and God's time is different. The New Testament is written in the Greek language. Uh, The Hebrew Scripture is written in the Hebrew language, but Greek is a very word-precise word, whereas Hebrew is a poet's word. So the New Testament had two words for time, specific words, and one word is, is a word for time we know very well. It's chronos. Chronos is where we get the word chronograph or chronology, Uh, That's the schedules that we keep. That's days on a calendar. That's the appointments that we have. That's the time we have too little of. That's not enough time in a day, right? The sun goes down on Kronos, and we hope that we finished what we intended to do. Kronos is the kind of time that will wear us out and burn us out. But there is another kind of time, and this is the time that's most often used when referring to God's time, and this is Kairos, and that's a different kind of time. Kairos, I would say, is a time within time, and think about the Kairos moments that you've experienced. Kairos can be a call in the middle of the night when suddenly your your plans and your schedules have been upended. Uh, Kairos can be a biopsy. Kairos can be rounding the corner and seeing a childhood friend. Kairos can be any time, both wonderful or terrible, that puts you in a tunnel. It puts you within a time within the Kronos time that you had planned. And suddenly we're in a different time and place. I believe that Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days because this was God's kind of time. God forming Jesus, God dwelling with Jesus, God sustaining Jesus, God preparing Jesus for the future. And the same will happen for us if we have the courage to go there. Pay attention to those moments, those Kairos moments within our busy days. Turn off the radio, talk to God, uh, sing to God in the shower, uh, find some time when it's just you and God alone, and let that time nourish you and prepare you for the challenges to come. We don't spend enough time with God, but this, I promise you, if we look for it, God will give it to us, time with Him, so that we can 
we can be strengthened until that final, ultimate Kairos time will be waiting for us, which is heaven. So that's what I've got out of the wilderness, and um, we'll keep this going. Thanks, everybody.